Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, uh, Mr. Mark Yusko is spending some quality time with his family, well-deserved, and we got a very special guest, uh, Avi Fellman of Block Tower. What's going on, Avi? Hey, how's it going, Michael? Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tearing yourself away from the screens. Uh, I was prepared to have a nice, relaxed uh, post-Thanksgiving chat, and then, um, you know, crypto decided to go have some big moves today. Yeah, it's funny, funny how that goes. I think uh, somebody who's orthogonal trading posted this great sort of tweet thread on what happened during Thanksgiving, and it's been mm-hmm. pretty bearish for most years. I think there was only two out of five of the last Thanksgivings have been up, and just the the low liquidity. I was kind of hoping that. And it wouldn't happen this time, but you got to prepare for these things, right? Uh, yeah. 10% down reminds me a little bit of, of last year on Thanksgiving where we, where we nuked really hard. And then that lasted for about two days before we ripped through 20K. That was like the last <laughs> nuke before, uh, before we ended up breaking higher. So there's there, a little, little, bit of, little bit of hopium there uh, for the listeners. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like uh, not as many people are thankful that this actually didn't happen one day before so that all the conversations with your relatives weren't, uh, why is crypto shitting the bed <laughs> so hard right now? Um, and yesterday it was just like, oh, like, what's going on with that? Because um, there's nothing worse than talking to like, skeptical family members about uh, what's going on with crypto while it's in the process of tanking 10%. Those are never fun conversations. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> it's, always, it's always amazing to me how people just come out of the woodwork anytime crypto goes down 10% to tell you that you were wrong about everything. Oh, dude, I, so my, my boss, uh, my job before uh, I left to do BlockWorks, every single time it goes down by more than 10%, he like, sent, he like DMs me like a little photo of a, of a Bloomberg article, like Bitcoin went down 10%, and he sent it again to me today. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> but it, it, it is nice, though, to have a Thanksgiving. It, it, actually, it was kind of interesting. This, this year, Thanksgiving felt a little bit like 2017 Thanksgiving, except people mm-hmm. were better informed this time around, at least in my family. In 2017, I think so too. nobody knew anything about crypto, but it was a topic of the conversation and everybody was giving their uninformed opinion. And this year, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I had a few people at the table that were, had gotten to crypto pretty deep this year. Yeah, I think the overall ed- uh, education level is definitely up. Um, and before we get into it with the charts, I guess I do just got to ask you, because I know you've been trading uh, pretty aggressively all day. Do you have any thoughts on what caused this latest pullback? Is it just low liquidity around Thanksgiving or any special insights into what's been going on? I can give you a quick rundown on my just general thoughts on the market here. So mm-hmm. I think if we start with the high level, this year has been a massive banner year for basically everybody from hedge funds to grandmothers. Like mm-hmm. a ton of people have made a ton of money. And heading into the end of the year, a lot of people are looking at that stack of capital and they're going, okay, well, I got to make sure to protect this, right? Uh, whether it's hedge funds looking to collect carry, venture funds distributing to LPs, whether it's people looking to sell in order, in order to lock in taxes. This has been a crazy year. Equities, crypto, commodities, everything is just up. And so I think you have a group of people that are just on edge and you're, they're kind of looking for reasons to take profit uh, for, for the time being. It's like, okay, well, if I, can, if I can get an excuse to start selling some of my assets, locking in some of this prop, profit through the end of the year and then close my eyes through December and just ride it out, then I'm probably going to go do it. And so that, I think, is, has been the, the mindset of the last four weeks ever since we entered into the last two months of the year in November. 
Now, if you look at like the Bitcoin chart, we basically started breaking down mid 60s, broke that broke that 60K level and have been chopping around for a reasonable amount of time. Equities have been super strong, so that's been helping out the market. But last night, well, actually on Tuesday was when this uh, mutant first got reported, this COVID variant for the listeners that don't know. Uh, that was the headline that CNBC was running with this morning. That actually got identified. Apparently, a new form of COVID was identified in South Africa as infected about 100 people so far, and they're calling it uh, very virulent. And that freaked the market. Equity started puking, and crypto generally doesn't act with a seven beta to equities, but it did this time. Uh, mm-hmm. So equity sold off about a percent. Bitcoin sold off about eight percent. So I guess an eight, eight beta there. But I think it's it was that equity weakness, people getting worried about this COVID variant, combined with the fact that people are just looking to take profit. So the moment something starts to go wrong, everybody starts to tell themselves a story as to why they should be getting out of the market, given their priors. And then mm-hmm. things like this happen. And we still we have a pretty levered market generally. I mean, open interest, if you take a look at uh, all derivatives, open interest, you divide it by the market cap of Bitcoin, you get a metric, what I call system leverage. That's been hovering around 2%. And 2% is a danger zone from my perspective. Mm. More than 2% of the market cap in Bitcoin is expressed via leverage and not via spot, then you start to get a little bit worried about these sort of wipeouts. And so really, this thing, these things tend to happen when you have low liquidity, when you have high leverage, and when you have a reason for a sell-off. All those hit, uh, and here we are. I'll say that normally, things like this are inefficient selling. So when you get a ton of liquidations that happen in a short period of time, those are forced sellers. Those aren't people that were sitting there, ingested information, thought about what they were gonna do, and then sold on the market, that's informed flow. They're just completely Mm -hmm. uninformed. They got stopped out of their positions. They auto sold, they're just gone. Uh, And a lot of them might have to get back in if their accounts aren't completely wrecked. But generally what happens is that type of selling tends to reverse. And so that crazy sell-off happened at around 57K is when it started to really, really dip. So locally, it's like, okay, well, maybe the worst is over ahead of us, but on a two to four week to six week horizon, uh, and then we can talk longer. We can talk about cycles. We can talk my views on that at, at any point. But through the end of the year, I still think that there are a lot of people that are likely and that really want to take profit, so likely to take profit. So you got You just have to be careful, I think, and that's that's how I'm thinking about it. Is we're in the we're in the woods right now. We're deep. We're deep in the jungle. Um, we come out in January after holidays. Maybe we've held 45k. Maybe we've held 50k. Then I think you start to get some reallocation to the space, uh, mm. and I think things start to look up. But I'm I'm cautious for now. I'm cautious for now. Okay. All right. I actually I've got one follow up question before I want to move on to the charts here. So one. Uh, one observation that I've had at not being in the markets like you are as a trader, but it does look like Bitcoin has almost acted like an anchor uh, to the rest of the market for a period of time. And, you know, it's, I think it's pretty tough to get a huge move up in crypto as an asset class if Bitcoin isn't doing anything. You know, one narrative that I've kind of heard is that Bitcoin being the most institutional asset within crypto you know, some of the more macro narratives tend to kind of weigh it down in general. So I guess, like using this exact example, right, COVID kind of spooks some of the bigger, more macro participants in the market, that might lead to selling in Bitcoin, and that in turn kind of drags the rest of the asset class down. Do you kind of agree with that overall opinion? Or is that, I don't know, maybe not what you think is really happening? 
I think that's that definitely happens and it happens very mm -hmm. frequently. And so what I think you're seeing is that a year ago, this just wasn't true in any way, shape or form. But fast mm -hmm. forward to today, a large holder base of Bitcoin or traditional hedge funds or traditional or traditional entities, a huge amount of Bitcoin has been sold from crypto natives to these traditional uh, institutions and hedge funds and whatnot. And they have to worry a lot about the rest of the equity markets because mm -hmm. most of their risk is held in the equity markets or in commodities or really any any form of traditional asset is where the majority of their balance sheet is going to be. So once they start holding Bitcoin and Bitcoin becomes a factor in their analysis, if things start to go south on the rest of their balance sheet, maybe they start looking to Bitcoin to risk off. And so that's really impacted the rest of the market because the way that these traditional funds allocate a small portion of Bitcoin and then most of their balance sheets are in equities, that's how the crypto world is, but Bitcoin's the anchor asset. And then they have all these like other other assets that they hold in their portfolio too, right? So you get all these native guys that they hold ETH, they hold you know small caps, they hold all sorts of random different things, different things in the book. When Bitcoin starts to tank, well, two things happen. One, these guys start to sell their inventory to reduce risk, so they kind of sell across the board as holders. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, maybe I don't want to sell all my Bitcoin, but maybe I'll sell everything equally, reduce reduce my risk over everything, and so that causes a bit of the correlations. Uh, and, and the other thing is that uh, market makers will often hedge not with the specific asset itself that they're trying to hedge against, but through a basket of assets. And so they reinforce those correlations. So let's say you go, you're a market maker and you, need, you, you have large inventory of this mid cap asset. Well, if you have a huge amount of that asset, you can't just sell that asset. You're going to destroy the price. So what you do is you try to take, you know, the beta of Bitcoin relative to that asset or the beta of that asset relative to Bitcoin. And so if you know that it's 1.5 times as volatile as BTC and historically they've been correlated, you're going to sell BTC in 1.5 times size to hedge out your your asset on your balance sheet that trades at 1.5x mm. BTC. And so that also reinforces the correlations just because historically there have been, right? And so it's this, um, I think if you look out into the future, so let's say you look out into a year, two years, three years, what's going to happen to the market? I think that Bitcoin itself is going to become, basically just going to become like a traditional asset. It's going to end up trading like a traditional tech stock, in my opinion. And its effect on the overall market, I think is going to become pretty divorced in two years time. Mm -hmm. The correlations are going to definitely break down. And you already see that with some sectors. So there are periods of time where Bitcoin just goes down. And if things are hot, so like AVAX was hot uh, two weeks ago, it was going no, kind of no matter what Bitcoin did, it was going up. Yeah. Because people, there's just like this crazy reallocation. As far as I understand it, like no traditional VC had even heard of AVAX. And they all like bet on Solana. And then they started like massively repositioning and like FOMOing into AVAX because they said, oh, wait, this thing might be cool, too. Um, so that, that was that was a, a large part of the tailwind there. But you'll, you'd saw, like, just didn't really care what Bitcoin did. Bitcoin went from 66K to 58K and AVAX doubled. Um, so there's still, you can see pockets of that now, that pockets of decoupling. Metaverse assets are a great example of this yeah. recently. So things like Sand have, like, 7Xed in the last month and Bitcoin's down in the last month. So you see pockets, right? of this decoupling that's happening right now. And they're mainly due to narratives, themes, where large people are reallocating to get exposure 
uh, not really thinking, not really thinking about Bitcoin because there actually there are a lot of funds that are being raised right now that aren't touching Bitcoin. I, I get a couple decks on these funds, and they're like, "Oh, we don't even trade Bitcoin anymore. We don't, we don't do that. We're only focused <laughs> on like ex Bitcoin assets." Um, some some of our competitor funds have already said that uh, super super publicly. So I think as as we move along over the next you know two years, there's going to be a decline in those correlations between BTC and alternative assets. But for the time being, I mean, like a Bitcoin trades 30k, you better not be holding altcoins because they're, they're definitely down like 85. percent <laughs> They're going to get smoked. Yeah, it is funny down. though. Like I like it's like my yeah, much less nuanced view than yours would be. You know, basically everything that's run up. Uh, a lot recently, that should unwind the hardest, right? In a general market sell-off. And I checked sand uh, earlier this, like earlier today, and unless it's moved a lot in the last couple of hours, it was only down, you know, you know, one or two percent or something like that. Uh, so it's literally, uh, it's a decent hedge actually to your to your Bitcoin holdings, uh, if that's the case. And like, I, so I guess to to just piggyback on everything that you said there, right? You have these very sophisticated um, allocators, right, who are managing risk across Bitcoin, a bunch of other crypto assets, maybe like a broader portfolio of equities, uh, commodities, gold, whatever they're managing. Um, my thought process would be, well, for some of these smaller cap assets, like maybe it's AVAX, maybe it's SAND, whatever, the greater percentage of holders would actually be more retail-based and they're less sophisticated. So they're like, yeah, I don't really care what's going on in the broader macro sense of things. Like, I still like this asset. I'm still buying it. That was my kind of thought process. I don't know. Maybe there are other reasons why AVAX might still be going up or SAND does well, like the metaverse narrative. You know, it's a, it's in crypto, but it's also, I mean, CEO of Dropbox came out and was like, yeah, we're all in on the metaverse. It's like, what do you mean, dude? Like, what are you guys going to do? Um, so I feel like that's a, a huge narrative that's pumping. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know if you pay any attention to, like, institutional holders of different types of assets like Bitcoin, ETH versus some of these other, like, longer tail type assets. Like, do you think that has much of an impact on price action? I actually think the larger the retail base of that asset Yes, it can have pockets of decorrelation, but when the broader market starts to unwind, they get scared the fastest. Mm. So what happens is, okay, let's say Bitcoin starts to crash, ETH starts to crash. Generally, with maybe the exception of Shiba, these retail holders hold a variety of different crypto assets. So they like mm. know what's happening in the rest of the market. They're, most people, most retail participants are not just all in on sand and that's all that they hold. But that can happen with some VCs that are allocating to metaverse asset rights now. Let's say that they want to bet on the metaverse as a theme. There are a lot of funds out there that are like just buying these assets in order to get exposure to to crypto. So there are there are also a couple of funds out there, a couple of trad funds where like the only things that they hold were BTC and Solana. It's like that's it. They're not going to maybe maybe some ETH too. Um, so I I do think that. It's it's sort of it's combination. There, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of nuance. You can't just say okay, well, uh, if if it's only retail holding this and this is what they're going to do. If uh, and Shiba Shiba taught me that because that was like a kind of slap in the face to anybody that thought retail was weak hands. They just like did not sell for the longest period. Of time. Um, but yeah, so I think I think it really depends on the broad base of that asset class and like. Who, who are the types of holders that, that hold that asset? So something like an AVAX, for example. I'm pretty sure that AVAX has a variety of different types of holders based on what we've, what we've seen. Kind of across the board, somebody that holds AVAX is also likely to have held, held ETH, is likely to have held Harmony, is likely to have held all these different types of assets. 
um, and you can kind of track wallets to, to, to figure to figure that out, take polls to figure that out, talk to people to figure that out. Uh, versus metaverse assets have much more concentrated holdings relative to the rest of, rest of these assets. So people that hold things like sand, like engine, like mana, generally aren't as diversified as people that hold things like AVAX. So AVAX is likely to be more correlated with market action. But every now and then, you know, you'll get these VCs that are that are coming in and force a decoupling of the asset versus this, this metaverse stuff, um, at least historically, has actually always been sort of uncorrelated, like engine trades with the market, but it is all over the place. It's pretty low correlation mm-hmm. with uh, with BTC. If you look at it overall, like over the last like two years, engine is like reasonably low correlation with BTC relative to relative to other assets. I think that's just because they're almost a separate like separate part of the crypto sphere. Um, so it really, really just depends on the on the asset asset holders, and you have to do a little bit of work to to, to figure that out. I do think the metaverse theme is kind of interesting because who know, like is crypto going to be the place where the metaverse wins? Like if you buy Engine or you buy Sand, is that is that the metaverse? Or are people like Dropbox going to come in? Are people like Facebook going to come in? Or people like Snapchat going to come in? Right? Do you like do you want to be buying Snapchat stock to bet on the metaverse? Do you want to be buying Facebook stock? Do you want to be buying Sand Engine? I, I I honestly I don't know, but that's something that I think we probably need to probably need to figure out. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody, customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned. I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. 
Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. I can tell you my metal model, like bounce it off you and let me know what you think. Um, I kind of feel like in the same way that you're starting to see some uh, CFI like platforms in crypto build on the DeFi rails. I sort of feel like that same analogy might be possible with like Facebook uh, building on and leveraging uh, some of the more like the, the property rights system, right? The crypto's building. Um, I probably wouldn't, to be honest, it's never a great idea to bet against Zuckerberg. Um, but, you know, if I was looking for the most pure play metaverse things in, in equities, I would be looking at Roblox or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I actually bought, I've, I've bought like no stocks in the last two years, but I did buy Roblox because 13 year old kids are obsessed with it. I don't know if you know many 13 year old kids. Don't out yourself if you do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like they're, these kids are literally obsessed with this game. So, um, yeah, I just kind of did. And then, you know, just the amount of time that people are spending um, on Roblox and also things like Fortnite. I mean, that feels to me intuitively like I get that. And that feels like that's a lot closer, that reality of spending a lot of time in games, hanging out with your friends in this kind of digital realm than like Zuck's version, which is, oh, hold on, let me like zoom in and I've got my avatar and put my shirt on and go hang out with people at this concert. I just don't really buy that. I'm just, I'm pretty far away from that, to be totally honest. But have you ever have you ever tried an Oculus before? No, I haven't. Oh, you you have to. So I just I actually just recently got got an Oculus like mm. two weeks ago. I put it on, not really expecting much because I've had some VR experiences and they were like fine. This was like a few years ago. I put it on, it's insane. It's like seventy. I'd say like sixty five percent real, which is super high in my in my mm. opinion. You you put this thing on. And the physical sensations that your body get, like if you're if you're in a plane or if you're in the ocean, it's pretty insane, and it feels mm-hmm. very real. So I downloaded a couple of games, uh, one of which was called like Echo VR, which is like this frisbee game. And I get in there and I meet a couple thirteen year olds, surprisingly. <laughs> and it's like there's just there's just like this lobby of people, and you're just like hanging out with these guys in VR, shooting the shit, and then you go and you play a game together. And after the game, the guys come up to you and they're like, oh, like, nice job. Or, oh, was that your first time? Or this, that. And you just start talking to them. And it's this weird, it's this weird feeling of, oh, you know, I've lived on this. I'm 26. I've lived on this search for 26 years. Very rarely do I get like new experience, like new crazy experiences like that. Mm. And this was a completely new crazy experience, right? Mm. But what I like, what I liken it to is when I was in third grade, I played RuneScape for the first time. And that was the first video game that was 3D. And I was just fascinated. I was like, I didn't realize that you could do this. I thought games were board games. I didn't realize that games could be a 3D thing where you're on your computer. You could see it. That's kind of how I view 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 the metaverse stuff. Uh, if you can't tell, we're, uh, we we hold some metaverse names in that book. <laughs> yeah, a little disclaimer. Um, okay, let me let me run this. I've got I've got had all this stuff planned for this episode, but now right. I just want to run a bunch of shit by you. Um, sure. So I have this kind of theory. I think you're seeing this play out in crypto where. When you look at bubbles, bubbles yeah. are like a glimpse into the future in that whenever something is capable of summoning the enthusiasm to generate a bubble, it's generally directionally correct, but you're looking at like the first very shitty version of it, and then it eventually builds on itself. So like to use the example in crypto, ICOs were actually directionally correct, right? The idea that you could bootstrap a network by selling ownership in it, that was directionally correct, but you just got the really crappy first version in 2017, a whole bunch of frauds and scams and 
they didn't really figure it out. But then they actually built on that, right? And then that's how you kind of got uh, DeFi, that's how you got NFTs, et cetera. So when I see something like the metaverse, and I see like Microsoft and Dropbox and, I mean, Facebook's meta stuff is definitely very real. I'm like, okay, this probably isn't the right iteration of it, but I do think there are legs here and I do think it's very powerful. I don't know what you think about that whole framework for it. I don't know if you think, like how close you think we are to a metaverse or what that's going to look like, but curious to get your thoughts there. You get that? Yeah. So to talk specifically about bubbles, I tend to employ this just mental framework that stores came up with that I really, I think is just completely accurate, which is mm. if there, if there's a bubble and the bubble pops, but the core of it sticks around and it starts to gain traction in even a small way in the future, then you know like that specific theme is primed for a second bubble for two mm. reasons. One, it means that there was something there. And two, it means that people are already thinking about it as a bubble asset. So the moment that it starts to turn course, starts to actually go up, people think to themselves, oh, what if it does what it did last time? What if it... What if, there's a second, what if there's a second bubble? Like, I can't miss it this time. I can't miss it this time. I can't miss it this time, <laughs> right? Which I kind of think is what happened with BTC in, in many ways is you get this crazy bubble in 2017. It pops. It sticks around for another year, two years, starts to go back up. You're at, you're at 20K again. You're at like 15K, 16K, 17K, 18K, 20K. Everybody that didn't buy in 2017 and felt poor because they didn't, they all piled in, right? And so it's that, it's that bit of psychology that I think is really important for identifying uh, where bubbles can form. And so I actually agree also with your point about ICOs. What, in these like original bubbles, so when a bubble, when a bubble first happens and that there, there's, a, there's a core kernel of truth to it, most people don't really know what to do with the tech. And they don't know how to iterate on the tech and they don't know what to like what exactly is is correct like what they should be building with it what they shouldn't be building with it and so i think that happened in the dot in the dot-com bubble you just had these like explosion of companies that had directionally the right idea but it just wasn't the right time i mean back in dot-com there were tons of delivery companies that popped up basically like postmates and instacart there were, i mean there were a ton of them and they just didn't succeed because the logistics weren't there. They didn't figure out how to do it in exactly the right way. You fast forward 10 years, all these companies like Instacart and Postmates and Uber Eats, they're billion dollar, like billion, multi-billion dollar companies. And it wasn't a new idea. It was the same idea that came around in 2000. They just iterated on it. They figured out what, what they needed to actually work on to build value. And they went out there and they executed it. And that's exactly what happened in crypto, right? is you have all these you have all these DeFi protocols out there right now, you have all these DAOs out there right now that basically learn from the lessons of the previous bubble. Now, identifying a bubble and figuring out when it's gonna when it's gonna explode is an entire entire science in itself. Um, but I think the heuristic of if something pops and it reaches even half or even three quarters of a way to its previous all time highs, then you start to you start to have the recipe for a crazy crazy bubble so let's say bitcoin let's say bitcoin sells off from here to something like 25 30k in the future if that happens but then it trades back to 60k you probably want to be looking at that asset again as a, okay maybe now it's going to 100 100 120 but but yeah that's uh i think that's a generally good heuristic for evaluating bubbles 
really good framework. I uh, Now, actually, I guess that's a good transition, actually, to we got to get through at least one of these charts here. So let me see if I can share my screen. Sure. Uh, but I did want to get your opinion on, like, so I actually, I actually kicked off last week's roundup um, with this exact same chart. Again, this comes from Benjamin Cohen, who's going to be coming on the podcast this week. Uh, but ba- he's basically charted out the different um, bubbles or different cycles that crypto has gone through in the past, right? So cycle one being 2011, two being uh, 13 to 14, 17, and then the current one that we're in. Um, so I guess, you know, two big takeaways from this chart, at least for me, is one, there's kind of this effect of diminishing returns when you're looking at different bubbles, like the, the, the run-up, right, of, of previous cycles starting in 2011, 2013 was just so violent. Uh, actually, your ROI was, was much higher. Um, and then two, it does look like, if you're just looking at this chart, uh, that it does look like the cycles are kind of lengthening um, in general. So I don't know, Avi, like how much you've thought about this current cycle and how it compares to previous cycles. Obviously, there's this whole uh, meme going around of like, we're in a super cycle right now. But just what are your general thoughts on how much longer we have in this cycle, where are we uh, in the current market cycle, and how much is this going to look like previous ones? I just kind of take issue with the idea of a cycle at this point, to be completely honest mm-hmm. with you. I mean, okay, like look at look at the purple line on your chart, which I think is a cycle. Look at how much not like a parabola it is compared to the other ones. It's mm-hmm. it's almost a completely different shape relative relative to the other guys. And I think it's indicative of the fact that there is a completely different set of market participants in this in this cycle. Um, right now you have very slow moving actors that are really driving the price of BTC. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that BTC is so large right now that you need these crazy amounts of capital to come in. And what that means is that when there's not a crazy amount of capital come in, there's a lot of, there's a lot of churn, there's a lot of sideways, there's a lot of, there's not going to be this crazy parabola where a dollar, a dollar in translates to like $50 worth of, of BTC price action, where there, that was true in cycle one, two, and three, because A, there was low liquidity, and B, Bitcoin was just it was just a smaller asset. It needed, it needed less right. money. Now we're a trillion-dollar asset. We need we basically need pension funds, endowments, states. We need all these types of people to start buying in order for Bitcoin, Bitcoin to go up. So from my perspective, we're probably going to trade more and more and more, like just a macro asset where maybe it doesn't trade in a well-defined one to two year cycle goes into a bear market and then bases and then comes out in parabolas it's probably it probably just looks a lot more choppy than that i still personally believe wholeheartedly that in five years bitcoin is going to be higher but for all i know I don't, there might not ever be an 80% drawdown again. There also might never be a 200% rally in two months ever again, right? Mm. So it might just be a little bit more of a, of a slow grind. In fact, that's specifically what I would bet on is that Bitcoin will trade pretty closely with equities. It'll trade at a lower vol, but it'll experience an upwards drift, right? Where maybe we'll sell off from 70 recently from 70k maybe we'll sell off to to 50k 45k we probably are unlikely to sell off 80 percent. maybe we start selling off you know like 40 40 to 50 percent, and then we'll then we'll then we'll rally back up and i think a lot of that is just because the current people in addition to needing a lot of money to push up bitcoin the current market participants they're collaring bitcoin right so you have these trad funds that come in and when Bitcoin's up 100%, they'll take profit. When Bitcoin's down 50%, they'll buy. Whereas in all previous cycles, the majority of the participants are retail. Bitcoin's up 100%, <laughs> hell no, I'm riding this thing to the moon. I'm not selling. 
Bitcoin's down 10%. Oh my God, I have to sell everything, right? It's just a completely different mentality. That's a lot more about momentum chasing than these TradFi vehicles, which are a lot more about mean reverting, right? So they, they're, they're trying to buy Bitcoin at value. When Bitcoin dips, they, they step in, they start buying like at 30K. It's like, oh, well, there is clearly a lot of buy pressure at 30K from people that deem it Bitcoin value, right? It had sold off enough that at 30K, they were willing to put their stake in the ground and they were willing to start accumulating a ton, a ton of BTC because they think that that was a reasonable value for it. Whereas in the retail, in the retail world, something sells off 50%, you're just trying to get out, right? You're, you're terrified. You're not really thinking about value. Your emotions are driving driving your decisions a lot more than your, your analysis of the situation. And so the just set of individuals that trade crypto now are much less emotional and much more rigorous with their approach to the markets than they were previously. So you're just going to not see like, you're, you're just not going to see boom bust. So looking at that purple, purple line, I actually wouldn't be surprised if we just range between something like a 35K to 60K for another six, seven months. And then we take a leg up to something like 80K and then we sell off Right. I mean, I view it unlikely that we're going to have a period again uh, where Bitcoin just, you know, quadruples in the in the span of a month or, or, or two months. I think uh, I think the asset's a little bit too mature for that. So the, the concept of cycles in my in my mind is, is almost dead at this point. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, isn't that kind of the super cycle idea, though? I mean, to paraphrase that comes from Suzu. Uh, I, we're running out of time here, but I want to get your opinion on uh, everything that sure. went down and kind of the the L1 space. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of his idea, right? Which is that these really well-predefined psych four-year cycles based around the halvening, that just can't go on forever. And I think everyone knows that uh, to some degree. I wonder if the expect the reason why so many people think it's going to happen before is just because if you've been in this market for more than, if you've gone through multiple cycles, this has just happened. And that's just been so reinforced, right? Uh, this, this idea. Well, okay, so so think, just think about the psychology of what you just said and what, and what we're mm -hmm. talking about right here. Think about the psychology of every single person that's been in crypto, one of the first questions that people ask other people is, oh, how many cycles have you been through? Or, you know, when, what, was, what was your first cycle? And the idea of a cycle is so ingrained within everybody that's been in crypto for longer than three years. Like the concept of Bitcoin trades and cycles is this truism that isn't actually a real truism, right? Like, so a truism is basically something that's true, but it's not actually, it's just something that people repeat as, as a statement. And that's that's the way that that's the way that I view it right now is we're we're entering into a paradigm shift, but because the concept of a cycle is so ingrained in crypto market participants, they haven't really let go of that yet. And so I think one of the biggest mistakes that people could make at this point is Bitcoin sells off to something like a like a forty five k, like a forty k, let's say from here, and somebody goes and they say, oh, we're entering into a bear market cycle. That's this is this is it. This is a bear market. Is it? I think that I don't think you should anchor that anymore. That's why you know we weren't we were we weren't selling at thirty k. We were doing the opposite by all traditional metrics. Uh, that would have led to a bear market. Like basically all traditional metrics, you look at every single other cycle that was likely entering into a bear market, and we traded back to traded back to all, new all time highs. And so I think getting in the mindset of okay, in the next bear market, in the next bear downturn, in the next bear cycle, uh, that's a that, 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 that's going to be punished in, in BTC terms, at least. I think that in other assets, there's definitely going to still be cycles. So in DeFi, in NFTs, in metaverse assets, uh, in L1s likely too, cycles are, I think, very, 
very likely to occur. But in BTC, I'm just I'm less sold on that idea. Mm. All right, I got to ask you about NFTs uh, while I've got you here. So these two charts were getting passed around Twitter uh, kind of in conjunction with one another. You're looking at OpenSea uh, volumes versus just the amount of NFTs that got sold on that platform. So minor dip uh, kind of month over month um, in terms of pure volume, but the actual number of NFTs that were sold uh, were pretty different. You can also you can look up some pretty good uh, data sets on a site called Fungible uh, or Non-Fungible. Um, and they track some pretty interesting things. They look at new uh, NFT, like primary issuance of NFTs. They look at secondary trading. They look at secondary prices. Um, I guess I'd just love to get your thoughts overall on the state of the NFT market and like what metrics you might be paying attention to to look for strength or weakness. So it's actually kind of funny. Uh, very recently, I sent out this tweet about the fact that uh, people joining, quitting their jobs to join crypto is reaching a fever pitch. I saw. And one of my, one of my, one of these guys was starting a, an NFT project and mm. I've actually got probably like seven or eight different people that I know that have quit their jobs to go start NFT projects. And so I think what's happening right now, and I think what's going to continue to happen is that there's about to be, so there already has been, but there's about to be an even bigger supply of NFTs than there ever has been in the basically ever, right? Uh, a ton of people are going to start issuing new NFTs. A ton of people are going to come out and build projects. There's going to be a flood of different stuff on the market. NFTs are art and people tend to gravitate, or at least like currently, like the, the, the types of, most of the types of NFTs that are sold are art right now. Profile picture NFTs, you know, auto-generated NFTs. Most of it's art. Obviously they're gaming NFTs. We won't get into that now. Uh, so people tend to gravitate towards the new stuff. And so I think what's going to happen is that the, a lot of the NFTs that don't necessarily have Lindy or don't necessarily have additional value associated with them, um, like a lot of these profile picture projects, they're just going to end up bleeding out as people move on to the new supply that's being created. And at some point in the next couple of months, that new supply is going to get so overwhelming that people are just going to stop buying because mm -hmm. they buy right now. So people buy these NFTs right now because they can flip them in three days for profits. But there's going to be so many different projects that come out over the next three months that that is going to dilute itself because there's just not going to be enough buyers to make sure that everybody's creating creating a profit here. And so I think what's going to end up happening is that a lot of these NFTs are just going to go to zero because there's not going to be any bids on them. Um, my my viewpoint on this is that NFTs are entering entering into a pretty extended bear market, which I do think NFTs can go through. Um, but that being said, I'm super bullish on NFTs on a two-year horizon. I think that it's pretty obvious that these things are here to stay, that there's huge, tremendous value in them. And I'm specifically talking about profile picture NFTs and like art NFTs. It's entirely possible that gaming NFTs just absolutely explode from here as people turn their attention to metaverse, to gaming. I actually think that's probably likely, is that gaming NFTs, stuff that you can use in games, starts to pick up from here on out. But yeah, I, I would be... I'd be pretty worried holding most of uh, most legacy NFTs here, to be honest. Yeah, I have I have no. Um, what do you specific think? thoughts? I, to be honest, the gaming NFTs for me has been, you know, I've heard that concept described a while ago by like Fred Wilson and Chris Dixon. I heard them talk about this in podcasts in like 2017, and that one has always made the most intuitive sense to me because when I was in seventh grade, I played Halo, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you ever played Halo. But like you can do this thing where after you beat all the campaigns, you can like go back through and you can collect these skulls, and mm -hmm. it's totally meaningless, right? But I like imagine the frictions here. So I had to ask my mom 
to drive me to Toys R Us. I had to go get the guidebook, drive yeah. back. You had to tell me where all these fucking skulls were. I don't know how many hours I put into doing this. Probably like 80, 80 hours, man. I had to complete on different, like legendary uh, difficulty level. And at the end of all you get is a new set of armor. And the only people that could see this new set of armor were my three nerd friends that used to come over and play Halo with me. So, yeah. like, I get it. I mean, I just so intuitively understand the value of the gaming NFTs that to me, I, I just don't have any, you know, I have no insight into that market, but I just do get... I think that kids will see the value in that stuff. Um, that's my personal theory. I, I mean, for me, you know, more immediate in, in terms of the NFTs, I think just the pure, uh, the issuance of new NFT projects was the biggest thing for me. So that's why I was like interested in, I guess what I'd be worried about if there's a huge amount of new NFTs being issued and like secondary trading was starting to slow down, because to me that would say, hey, there's like more supply coming onto the market than there is demand. And especially if the price of secondary trading started to fall too. Um, I'd be concerned about it. I know, dude, we got to wrap here. I wish there was more time that we had to go through some of this stuff. Um, but who knows? Maybe we can do it again uh, sometime soon. But uh, yeah, I'd love to come on anytime. I mean, this has just been a crazy market day, as I'm sure all the people listening know. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I hope, it's, <laughs> I hope it's been not too bad for you uh, and yeah. Block Tower. But um, I'm sure m most of the people tuning into the podcast will actually know you already. But just in case they don't, what's the best way to like follow you, work you do Twitter, be a block tower, whatever it is? Yeah, uh, shoot me a follow on Twitter at Avi Feldman. Sweet. All right, man. Thanks for coming on and doing this. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Michael. Appreciate it. Take care.